Welcome to the New Books Network. Not long ago, commentators thought they were observing a shift to the left in Latin America, especially in Chile and in Brazil with the return of Lula da Silva to office. But then soon after a democratic election in Peru, things started to turn in a bad direction. Already, Venezuela's authoritarian regime had descended into disaster and Nicaragua has as well. The overall picture thus seems more like one of democratic stagnation and erosion. So what's going on in Latin America? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Enrique Desmond Arias, who is the Marx Chair of Western Hemisphere Affairs and Professor of Political Science at Baruch College and here at the Graduate Center. He's the author of several books, including Criminal Enterprises and Governance in Latin America and the Caribbean from Cambridge University Press uh, and Drugs and Democracy in Rio de Janeiro trafficking social networks and public security from university of north carolina press and finally he's co-editor among others he's co-editor of cocaine from coca fields to the streets on duke university press and violent democracies in latin america also from duke university press so thanks very much for being with us today enrique desmond arias thank you for having me Great to, great to have you with us. So let's start with the current troubles in Peru. So first, a new president's elected. Uh, then he tries to suddenly start ruling by decree and was soon chased out of office. Now, you know, many Peruvians seem to want him back, even though he's tended towards this authoritarian turn. And all this unfolds against the backdrop of a history of back and forth between democracy and authoritarianism in Peru. So can you explain to us what What's going on? Yeah, Peru is a really complex situation, and it's a country um, where there hasn't just been back and forth between democracy and authoritarianism, right? So you can think back to the 1990s to the Fujimori regime, which was also begun with a self-coup by um, President Fujimori at the time in response to instability in the country, in response to a vigorous, uh, you know, a vigorous civil conflict that was going on as well as a host of other problems and an unwillingness on the part of Fujimori to find a way to work with Congress. Um, and that, you know, in fact, became a, a, you know, a legitimate authoritarian regime, you know, with repression and with, um, you know, the, the security services working against different elements of the opposition uh, in that country. Um, in, in the last uh, six years, Peru um, has returned to what I would characterize as, as instability uh, rather than kind of a move back and forth uh, with authoritarianism, right? That's part of a longer history in the country. Um, uh, in 2016, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski was elected uh, president and he was, you know, a, 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 an a, a, he was he was connected to the you know international system, was well respected. 
uh, in the academy. Uh, and he had an incredibly difficult time. He was elected facing a highly polarized Congress uh, with uh, Fujimori's daughter, Keiko Fujimori, uh, leading the opposition. Right? So she was, she was his main opponent. Her party and allied parties have a tremendous amount of power in Congress. So despite that Kuczynski was leading the country as president, he didn't have control of Congress. Right. And so Kuczynski goes through uh, in this highly polarized country between, uh, you know, a right wing that's associated with, you know, former President Fujimori. Right. And uh, kind of everybody else, which includes people who are more in the center, like uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski and people who are on the left, like uh, Castillo. Um, it, it It is led to polarization over the years. So. Um, Kuczynski began his presidency under pressure from the opposition in Congress. Uh, and in fact, he was subjected to two separate impeachment processes. Uh, in, in, and Kuczynski's way out of the impeachment was to negotiate and offer uh, financial support to members of the, his opposition, right? And there were videos of this, right? And in addition to uh, you know, his implication in the Odebrecht scandals, right? And this gets into bigger questions related to Brazil. Odebrecht's a Brazilian company, uh, region-wide corruption issues, uh, which get into questions of, of why there's stagnation uh, broadly in democracies in the region. Uh, he also was videotaped, you know, trying to, you know, purchase the votes of members of the opposition uh, in Congress, right? And there, were, there was video of this and, and all of this put together leads to the pressure that forces uh, Kuczynski from office. And he is succeeded by his vice president and then this vice president is succeeded by another, uh, uh, another political official um, as a result of constitutional succession. So during that presidential mandate, you have two separate, you, you ultimately have three presidents uh, before you get to Castillo's election. Uh, and, Castillo, and the results of the Castillo's election are roughly the same, right? It's an incredibly close election, right? It's, there's less than 1% of difference. And Castillo also doesn't control the Congress, right? The, the, the midpoint of the Congress runs through a large group of independents who are not particularly beholden to any party. Uh, and there is a strong right-wing opposition in Congress organized around uh, Keiko Fujimori's party. Um, and Castillo himself comes from the from the left in in uh, in Peruvian politics. He's he's far on the left, um, and so different from Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who's under pressure because of you know opposition issues, because of what Fujimori is trying to do, uh, because of the general dynamics of of Peruvian politics, right? And he kind of gets mired in this opposition dynamic, and then his own corruption issues. Castillo makes people a little bit more anxious because he's further to the left. Uh, and he represents uh, a, a different kind of approach to Peruvian politics. He, he represents, you know, more radical, the possibility of more radical changes. Now, he doesn't control Congress. So that's, you know, how far he can go with any of these these changes or hopes of, of reforms in the country is, is less clear. But, you know, he is further over to the left, right? And that makes people on the right even more anxious. Castillo's subjected to, during his relatively brief time in office, three separate impeachment proceedings. Um, impeachment is something I think at this point I probably need to draw some attention to in, in Peruvian politics because I've now talked, I think, about five impeachments 
uh, of the president uh, in in you know just the opening minutes of this podcast. Uh, there aren't really any restrictions on when an impeachment can be brought in the Peruvian Congress, right? There are you know norms in the Peruvian Constitution that say you can impeach people for this or that, but they're incredibly broad, right? So Castillo was impeached for kind of moral incapacity, right? Which is which is very general. Um, so he's impeached, you know, multiple times uh, by the Congress, where there are multiple attempts at impeachment, right? Which, you know, creating stresses um, in, in the administration. And he eventually responds to this pressure from the right with a self-coup attempt, right? Where, where he comes on TV and says, I'm closing Congress, right? And the last person to do this in Peru was, of course, Alberto Fujimori back in the 90s, uh, right? And he's doing this against a Congress that's ultimately at this point, you know, controlled, if, you know, somewhat marginally, but controlled by Fujimori's daughter. Um, so he attempts a self-coup, but the self-coup is complete failure. Um, on the positive side, and I think what's at least modestly encouraging about that particular part of this episode in, in Peruvian history is people in the military, people in, in Castillo's cabinet somewhat did not align themselves with the coup attempt, right? People said, people started resigning. Uh, there was pushback on this immediately. Uh, the self-coup failed, right? And that reflects over the course of 30 years I think a greater commitment to democracy, however flawed uh, that democracy is in Peru, a greater commitment to democracy in the country, at least at, at the elite level, right? And maybe I'm overdrawing this a little bit, um, but I found that the fact that he didn't achieve the coup somewhat encouraging. Well, indeed, now, that does sound somewhat encouraging. Uh, I, I mean, I have to say that I have a student who just returned, I mean, just a couple of days ago from Peru, and he was clearly very spooked very kind of distressed about what was going on in his country, his family there. He's very worried. And, you know, what you say sounds like a positive development. Indeed, it is. Uh, but how do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, so that was what I was going to get to. So I thought that moment of him not achieving the coup was kind of a good thing. Um, but now, of course, things have kind of gotten the wrong direction, right? So you, you know, he's been replaced by Dina Boluarte. Um, she's, as I understand it, somewhat, you know, she's not on the far right, um, but nevertheless, she's someone who is, you know, leading the country from a, leading the country in, in her capacity from, in, in a somewhat, in, in her efforts to address the social unrest associated with Castillo's downfall uh, in a somewhat in a somewhat repressive way. Right. Um, you know, Peru today, um, you know, with the legitimate concerns of, um, you know, a, a population that's been excluded from political power for much of the country's history, um, who elect some you know, who elected a reformist president, you know, have said, like, this isn't this isn't accepted. It's been forced in, in some ways. You, you know, he's been forced from power. Uh, he he had some degree, he had a substantial degree of popular legitimacy. You know, he won the election, if by a small margin, right, that's still winning the election. And, you know, people have, have protested against against the change. People have protested against the shift of the government to the right, right, that, that you know, he was succeeded not by somebody closely associated with, with his political agenda. Um, but, you know, so the politics begins to move in the country and people are dissatisfied with this. People are, are protesting. Right. There's a history in recent years of estiados sociales, right, um, social explosions uh, in uh, in in Latin America, in Chile, in Colombia. There have been major 
protests. I was in Panama this summer. There was something approaching in Estado, which was more like labor strike, massive labor strikes that shut the country down for a couple of weeks. Um, but there's there's been a process of these types of major protests going on, right? And these types of major protests are often associated with some type of uh, repression, right, which happened in, in Chile, which happened in Colombia. I think the, 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 the repression has been quite acute uh, in Peru. Uh, and, you know, it's led to injuries, massacres, um, uh, often in uh, regional capitals, like places like Ayacucho. Uh, and um, they reflect a, 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 a degradation of the commitment to uh, democracy and the commitment to the rule of law in terms of the practices of the government as it interacts with everyday people. And I think this is an important moment to kind of distinguish between what I said was kind of positive about the, um, the turning back of Castillo's coup attempt uh, in this, you know, last year and what's happened since then, right? So a couple of minutes ago, I said, hey, it's really good. You know, the elite kind of came together and said, hey, we're not going to have a coup. That was good. Right. But that's the elite saying to itself, you know, we respect the Constitution, however flawed the Constitution is, however flawed contemporary politics are. Uh, and we are going to follow the rules that leave us as an elite in power. But it's something else to say, OK, now we took out this president with a certain degree of popular legitimacy. People are protesting. We're going to engage in full bore repression against that population and massacre people. Right. So the elites respecting itself, the elites respecting on some level the constitutional order. But the way in which that constitutional order gets applied to the population, especially the poor in the country, is very different. Right. People are being injured. People are being massacred. And I think that gap right between those two outcomes reflects a lot about what's going on with Latin American politics today and a lot about the stagnation. Uh, that we're going to talk about a little bit more explicitly later in, in the podcast. Right. Which is that, you know, there's a commitment to liberal order on some level, right? Certainly more so than there was in the 70s or the 80s. Um, the elite are interested in kind of respecting that, protecting themselves. There's a there's a broader commitment to that, right? And very often um, from sectors of the elite that historically haven't been, right? The military um, often are more committed to the constitutional order, perhaps not perfectly committed to the constitutional order than certainly than they were back in the 70s when they were staging coups and massive repression in many countries. Um, at the same time, the way in which the police, the military and the elite think about the treatment of protesters, think about the treatment of the poor and the working class often operates utterly outside the robust guarantees of, of basic rights that are in the liberal constitutions these elite purport to respect when they're talking about their own power, right? And their own relationship with each other at the highest levels of government. Right. Well, that does indeed all lead into the larger discussion of stagnation, erosion, et cetera, which you obviously have, you know, important things to say about. But let's look at one other important recent case of, uh, you know, elections. I mean, the biggest country in the region, of course, is Brazil. And, uh, you know, it's had its kind of Trumpy uh, experience, I suppose you could say. And that uh, Trump knockoff, Bolsonaro, has now been, uh, you know, has lost an election. 
and um, replaced by Lula da Silva, uh, who, of course, ran the country in the past before being sent to jail on dubious corruption charges. Um, but uh, I wonder what you would say about, you know, the status of democracy there. I mean, Bolsonaro made a lot of noises about not recognizing the outcome, but but then he left for Florida. Uh, and then when his people seemed to have, you know, attacked the government buildings, uh, it looked sort of like January 6th, but in a certain sense, it was very different. There were very few people actually, I guess, in those buildings at the time. And uh, you know, the leader of the the movement, insofar as that's the way to describe him, was really no longer in the country. Uh, so he wasn't directing this operation in the same kind of way. So tell us, you know, how you see what's happened in Brazil as a result of these elections and a result of the apparently, you know, departure of Bolsonaro from from politics. So, so Brazil's experience in recent years is not so different from Peru's. I mean, they're obviously very different countries. Brazil's a much wealthier, more powerful country. There's a different dynamic to the politics. Um, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva is not Castillo. Uh, he's a more moderate and experienced leader, a sophisticated leader of the country, and indeed, indeed even a historic leader of the country, um, having served uh, two terms as, as president and having run in almost every presidential election since 1989 and having been an important leader in the movement away from demo- from authoritarianism in the 1970s and 1980s. But the story, despite all of that, the story isn't that different, right? The, the election of Lula was really close uh, last year. Uh, it was one, he had less than 51% of the vote. It was a slightly more than 1% victory against Bolsonaro. And I think to put that that narrow victory in perspective, it's important to reflect on how that victory was achieved, right? So Lula, Lula's vice president is a, is a man named Geraldo Alcmin, uh, who is a powerful politician with the the Brazilian Social Democratic Party, PSDB. Um, Alcmin is the um, was I believe the government the governor of Sao Paulo. He was a candidate for president himself. He was a major antagonist of Lula when he was president. Uh, the PSDB is the party uh, is the only other main party other than uh, Bolsonaro that has competed for the presidency since 1994 with uh, the, the, the Workers' Party, the PT, right? So, I mean, Brazil has a complex multi-party system due to uh, its voting process for Congress. Uh, Peru has a similarly diffuse legislative structure, which is part of where these challenges are coming from, right? Parties aren't really well aggregated and organized. Um, but at the presidential level, right, it's a it's a kind of bi- it's been a bipartisan system for the past almost 30, almost 30 years um, between the PSDB on the center right and the PT on the center left in Brazil. Right. So how does Lula ultimately win the election? He establishes an alliance with the other main pro-democratic party, um, the only other party that's held power other than the PT between 1994 and 2016. Uh, And, you know, that and in addition to that, they also incorporated into their coalition other a few other parties, which actually go back to including all of the parties to win presidential elections before Bolsonaro since 1989. Uh, And I was I was I was I was researching this a little bit last night. I was I was surprised. Right. Because the president who was elected in 1989, Fernando Collor de Mello, uh, pursued a kind of 
uh, radical inflation cutting agenda, became involved, became mired in scandals and was forced from office. Uh, so I wasn't quite I, I hadn't quite digested that that piece of the Brazilian political establishment actually had been incorporated into this uh, alliance. Uh, but basically, the entire upper level of the political establishment aligns with Lula to run against Bolsonaro because they feel so threatened by the politics of the you know, kind of this Trumpish populist uh, movement. But they only win by a little bit more than 1% of the vote, right? And so that's that's an important thing to keep in mind here. Like they won, but the entire political establishment got together and they kind of just pulled it off. Maybe not as close as Pedro Castillo, a little bit more margin of error, but not too much. Um, and, and that reflects polarization in Brazil, frustration by a large portion of the population uh, in Brazil with, with different policies and dynamics in the country. Uh, and it reflects um, a relatively weak commitment um, to, if not democratic process, which I think is a little bit more complicated, uh, it reflects a relatively weak commitment to addressing me the meaningful reforms that are required to kind of get Brazil uh, moving forward. And I would say if we want to think about Brazil and, and the latter part of your question, which is, uh, you know, can Lula fend the, can the, fend the right off? I think we have to bring this question back to 2016 and again, look at Congress a bit. Um, so between 2002 and 2014, two, yeah, between 2002 and 2014, the Workers' Party won four straight presidential elections. Lula won twice, and then he was succeeded by uh, his chosen successor, Dilma Rousseffi, in 2010 and 2014. During this period of time, the Workers' Party develops an alliance uh, with centrist elements of the Brazilian political establishment uh, you know, to keep themselves in power. Right? They become really dominant. They play important roles in, in leading different parts of the country. They elect governors in, in, in the Northeast, which was unexpected uh, when Lula originally came to power. And they are actually successful policy-wise with developing programs like the Bolsa Familia, uh, the Family Scholarship is sort of what it translates to, um, where uh, which is a conditional cash transfer program, which was successful in modestly reducing wealth inequality in Brazil, right? One of the most unequal countries in the world, right? So these are, are remarkable, substantive policy accomplishments uh, that aren't terribly radical, right? These are these are achieved by cash transfers, right? Nothing, there's no you know, this isn't land reform. This isn't, uh, you know, major wealth transfers. This is, you know, people being taxed the way they're taxed in Brazil and just having more of that money dedicated to putting money in the pockets of, of the poor, of people, of, of people who have been, ex of people from families that have been excluded and disadvantaged over the course of Brazilian history. So they give this, they achieve getting elected in part out of alliances. Um, in the 2000s, there were a couple scandals very significant scandals in Brazil, where uh, the Lula administration at the time was buying the votes of members of centrist parties in order to pass legislation, right? So this was the, the Mensalão scandal, right? The monthly payment scandal and the post office scandal, right? They were all involved in pay, these like kind of petty payoffs to members of Congress. Um, Dilma Rousseffi is elected um, and another scandal emerges, uh, which is more serious, which is the Lava Jato scandal. Right? So Lava Jato, is a, Lava Jato tra is, translates to car wash. Uh, 
from into English, uh, and uh, it was named such because the payments were kind of made in a car wash. Um, but the car wash scandal was associated with payoffs from major contractors in Brazil being diverted to different political factions uh, in the country, right? So one of the meaningful accomplishments of the Lula administration was actually empowering the Brazilian federal police to investigate uh, the elite, uh, to investigate the political class. Um, so there's a very serious investigation that's going on of the political class. Um, the investigation is being led by a, by a judge in the South, Sergio Moro, uh, who is, you know, pursues a lot of different avenues. Uh, and, you know, some of these are becoming more acute. Um, and that's kind of where things begin to become complicated. Uh, in After the 2014 election, the Brazilian economy is kind of stagnant. It's actually, they're, they're in a serious recession. Um, you have a series of, uh, you have these, these scandals getting more acute. Um, they're working their way up. Lula becomes implicated in these scandals. Uh, politicians begin pushing back against them. Hussefi herself doesn't want to stop these investigations. She's not accommodating of that as president. Um, and the, the political establishment uh, decides to impeach her. Um, and she is forced from office and she is replaced by her vice president. Uh, Michelle Temer, who comes from a centrist party, kind of one of these non -partic not particularly ideological parties in the middle, uh, that they develop their this a powerful but not particularly ideological party that is implicated in a lot of this different stuff, right? They don't have a particular agenda, much more than staying in power and having power. Um, so she's forced from office, and this curtails this investigative process somewhat. Uh, Moru continues investigations of Lula. Um, and is relatively, you know, and, and continues to push this line, continues to push the investigations. Lula becomes more implicated on this, uh, more implicated in this, is arrested. And, you know, Brazil starts passing through a very difficult time, right? You have this fragmented, polarized Congress. You now switch from having a Workers' Party president to a president from a centrist party who begins, after this impeachment, leading a right-wing government that doesn't really have much legitimacy in terms of how people voted, right, which only exacerbates polarization and emphasizes kind of the corruption of the Brazilian system. You have this very public prosecution of this former president who is implicated in this scandal, right? And this is where kind of Bolsonaro comes from, right? And Bolsonaro, my familiarity with Bolsonaro is I research criminal groups. Uh, and when I first heard that Bolsonaro was, was running for office, I said, isn't he mixed up with the militias in Rio de Janeiro. And the militias are these uh, paramilitary police-connected extortion rackets uh, that run neighborhoods, murder civic leaders in opposition, and uh, demand you know, taxes from the residents of neighborhoods, take over businesses and run them as rackets, uh, especially in poor suburban areas of Rio de Janeiro, right? They're a very frightening, dangerous type of organization. Bolsonaro and his family uh, who are involved in politics in Rio de Janeiro, Bolsonaro was a congressman in Rio de Janeiro, are very closely connected with the militias, right? They have these, and they have these, these relationships. These relationships are often important in Rio de Janeiro for getting elected, right? Because a militia can restrict who can campaign in the neighborhood, uh, who can, and, and they can promote certain candidates in those neighborhoods. So, in, during my research for criminal governance in Rio de Janeiro, I spent a lot of time in a church that was connected. I spent some time in a church that was connected to a militia. Um, 
And, you know, they brought a cat, they brought a, a police officer who was running for uh, city council to the neighborhood and they promoted his candidacy uh, in the community and supported that. Um, and so Bolsonaro and his children are involved in this. One of his children was a Rio city councilor. He gave an award and to a prominent member of militias. He members of that militias family were there, uh, were in, worked for him. Um, some of these militias were involved, members of these militias were involved in assassinating a prominent um, socialist uh, member of the Rio City Council, um, an Afro-Brazilian uh, member of the city council from a poor community. Uh, she died. Um, it was a kind of rocked the Rio political establishment itself. And so, yeah, when I heard that he was running, I was, you know, very troubled by that. A now, little nervous. Yeah. The, the, the militias themselves are a Rio de Janeiro thing. They didn't have a tremendous amount of impact on his government itself. Right. I mean, that just became kind of the populist kind of pro dictatorship nostalgia uh, that, that Bolsonaro himself was, was like is supportive of. He was an army officer during the dictatorship. Um, so what happens between 2016 and 2018 is the entire political establishment because of these because of the 2016 impeachment plus the investigations of corruption becomes discredited. Bolsonaro himself is a kind of longtime backbench congressman. He's not particularly prominent in this. He's involved in all sorts of unsavory things in Rio de Janeiro, in my view. But um, he's not quite high enough up, I think, to be involved in the worst of Brazilian scandals. So he kind of can run as kind of like cleaning up the cleaning up the political establishment. Lula tries to run. Sergio Moro, right, who's doing the investigations, um, keeps pressure on Lula, uh, you know, to keep him out of the race. Um, later on, information comes out that that Sergio Moro kind of manipulated the case a bit to ensure that Lula couldn't run, right, to disadvantage Lula. And then Bolsonaro gets elected, right. And there are people in Brazil who are frustrated uh, with the direction of things. Um, there is populist resentment, especially populist resentment against the poor, uh, who are often blamed for violence in the country uh, unfairly. Um, and so then you get, you know, four years of, of Bolsonaro's leadership. Where are we today? Right. You know, there is a radicalized portion of, of Brazil's population there. They were camping out on military bases, seeking to promote, uh, you know, some foment a coup by the military. Um, that led in part to the January 8th invasion of Congress. Right. As you said, like nothing was really going on on January 8th. Uh, I think it was more a, a an, an act on the part of these protesters to get the military, which had been tolerating them camping out on their bases, which is not something that the military is supposed to be allowing them to do, in part because I believe there's sympathy, sympathy among some segments of the military for them, for this political position, um, to get the military to rise up um, as a moderating power in Portuguese, the Força Moderador, um, which is something that goes back to uh, the Brazilian military's coup in 1964, right? So the Brazilian military up through the 1970s really did believe it was a moderating force in Brazilian politics who was supposed to force, who, that had a role in making sure that the political establishment, which was often seen as corrupt, right? Same as today, um, uh, would, um, you know, be hew to the constitution. Between you know the establishment of the Brazilian uh, of the of the Brazilian Republic, the end of the monarchy at the end of the 19th century, and 1964. There are 
a number of military risings and coups in Brazil, right? It was common practice for the military to intervene in, in politics during this time. Um, there was a lot of work done in the 1970s by military leadership in preparation for the return to democracy, as Eddie Vesfati has shown, um, to get the military to professionalize and not engage in coups or other types of risings to or either overturn the popular will, the constitutional order, or otherwise pressure uh, the political leadership of the country. And this was remarkably successful, right? So it's been now almost 50 years since the last coup. Um, and that's, wait, almost 60 years. My math is off, right? It's been a long time, right? It's been 58 years. And that, that's a huge accomplishment for Brazil. Um, right. So, and, so maybe we should start to get into the larger, I mean, this obviously was a major development in Latin America. And I do want to have time to talk a little bit about this, you know, broader picture. I mean, we talked beforehand about this article by Scott Mainwaring and Anibal uh, Perez-Lignan in Journal of Democracy and this kind of region-wide assessment of, of what's going on. And I'm always, yeah. you know, as somebody who pays more attention, certainly to Europe, when people talk about Europe, I mean, the question about, you know, who do I call when I want to talk to Europe remains a significant one, you know, even though there is this thing called the European Union now. But so there's this kind of assessment that they make that uh, democracy in America, in Latin America is sort of stuck and that there's this tendency towards, you know, stagnation and erosion, as they put it. And, you know, you've given some reason to think that's not entirely incorrect, but and it's not clear. I mean, how to what extent one can, you know, validly sort of assess the entire region. I mean, a lot of different countries that we're talking about with different sy systems and situations. But how would you assess kind of the larger picture of democracy in Latin America today? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think you know, where Brazil is today kind of reflects some of that, which is, uh, again, you know, you have uh, an increasing commitment to constitutional order by various elite segments, uh, if imperfectly, right, the military have been a little bit ambivalent here and there about supporting the constitutional order, but have come down on the right side. Um, but you have also, at the same time, these fragmented polarized polities, right? So Lula doesn't have control of Congress. You could have a similar dynamic where Lula's forced out an impeachment in a few years if things don't go his way. Um, but that's layered onto, right, these very serious problems of corruption and violence against the poor and the working class, right? So part of part of uh, Bolsonaro's policy, his ideas, his dictatorial nostalgia, uh, is this engagement with the militias, right? This idea that the police or paramilitary groups will go out and they'll repress crime uh, disproportionately by slaughtering the poor and the working class, um, members of, uh, you know, the large Afro-Brazilian population that is, you know, uh, a plurality, if not a majority of the country. And this is this is a huge issue, um, right? The kind of disjuncture, as Teresa Caldeira and James Holston put it so eloquently uh, 20 years ago, between a, a constitution and a constitutional order that most politicians and leading actors and governments are committed to, and the practices and the treatment of the population, right? The abuses that the Brazilian police, in particular, exercise against the poor, right, and the working class, uh, a majority of the country, uh, that the Peruvian police in Peru, right, facing facing um, 
a, a, a wave of popular protest, exercise against the poor uh, in that country uh, are, are reflective of, you know, in many ways, the limitations of these political systems, right? And, and the state, the, the place that those political systems are at, right? And so uh, Mainwaring and, and Perez-Lignan make, make uh, say there are the kind of three pieces to this argument, right? And they, they say there are three reasons why the stagnation, is, is, you know, is going on in, in Latin America, right? There are, you know, authoritarian holdouts in the state, right? And by this, you know, I think most precisely you'd, you'd identify kind of police and military who aren't necessarily in many cases trying to stage coups, but who are perfectly happy abusing, are, are comfortable abusing rights in the context of advancing their different agendas and in the context of um, just, you know, kind of inefficiently carrying out their mandates. Um, disproportionately, the people who are suffering this are not the wealthy, the well-connected, Right, people occupying political offices. It's poor. It's the poor. It's people from disenfranchised segments of the population that are discriminated against. Indigenous peoples, descendants of indigenous peoples. Uh, it's members of the Afro Afro American Afro Latin American Afro Brazilian Afro Colombian communities uh, in these countries uh, that are are systematically excluded, discriminated against. Uh, you know, and subject to historic abuses uh, in these countries. There are also, of course, within the government, you know, lines of political thought in Congress, you know, that are not terribly sympathetic to democracy. Uh, as scholars, you know, back during the transition to democracy and in the analysis of the collapse of democratic regimes in late middle to late 20th century, said, you know, there are some parties that are really committed to democracy, but there are some parties that are conditionally committed to democracy. So there are kind of right-wing parties out there, right-wing politicians out there like Bolsonaro who are perfectly happy to use democracy to get elected. But, you know, if they took power or if they're not holding on to power, aren't necessarily committed to staying in, uh, staying democratic or keeping the country democratic. Democrat, their commitment to democracy is conditional on whether or not it delivers them power. Um, a second part of their argument is that there's a great deal of government inefficiency, right? The governments themselves are ineffective. So people are getting frustrated and polarized about this and looking for quick solutions, you know, after 30, 40 years of democracy not necessarily functioning so well uh, or accomplishing what people wanted to accomplish, especially when there's an economic downturn, right? So an efficacy begins to make a difference. And then May uh, Waring and Perez Lignan recognize um, you know, hybrid states where authoritarian holdouts uh, limit democratic deepening, right? So you have certain parts of the state functioning, certain parts of the state not functioning, and then kind of less commitment uh, to democracy itself, right? And I think the stories that I, you know, have told about um, Peru and Brazil all reflect these particular dynamics. Um, there is, you know, kind of growing liberalism in the region, right? Um, Venezuela is, you know, Venezuela and Nicaragua, uh, you know, are authoritarian. Uh, there are international pressures that often support, you know, these different types of these different types of actors uh, in the region, uh, although those are probably more limited than, you know, these internal uh, country specific pressures, I think, that are being outlined by Mayor Moring and, and President Young. I would add to this, and I think it's really important, is that when we think about Latin America, it's very important to also think about the United States. I'd say we tend to think about the United States as a country that is more like Europe, and we tend to compare the United States to Europe. But when we talk about democratic stagnation, hybridity in the state, 
uh, when we talk about a lack of commitment to democracy by certain factions within our political elite. And then when we also talk about abuses against certain portions of the population, indeed, historic abuses and tolerance of those abuses, especially by certain segments of our political establishment and frustration that comes out of that. Uh, it's really important to think about the similarities uh, between the, the, the processes of democratic erosion in the United States and the processes of democratic erosion in places like Peru and, and Brazil. So maybe to conclude, um, is there one country that you would sort of point to as a, a, a diamond in the rough? I mean, that's going to sort of turn things around or, you know, improve its democratic uh, position um, that we should look to as a kind of regional leader? So I think I think, you know, Uruguay, Chile, Costa Rica have all been places that um you know, ha seem to be uh, somewhat more stable today. Um, and, you know, if you think about those countries, uh, they, you know, they're all, they all have a smaller population, which facilitates things. Um, they all have a, probably a relatively functional government for some, in some ways, Costa Rica and Uruguay, Costa Rica abolished its military back in the 1940s. Um, Uruguay uh, and Costa Rica, and Chile have all kind of been working towards, uh, you know, working on their politics. They have low, they have relatively low homicides. Chile has the lowest in the region. Uh, Costa Rica uh, has uh, relatively low uh, homicide rates. Uruguay doesn't, you know, Uruguay isn't isn't an outlier in this area. They don't have particular problems with this. Uh, Uruguay um, and Chile. Uh, have sought to address their legacies of authoritarianism from the 1960s and 1970s. Um, you know, although in the, in, in the case of Chile, they are particularly strongly baked into the constitution. I would say right now, in terms of looking forward, the most interesting country is Chile, uh, where there was this kind of social explosion a few years ago, um, a demand for a new constitution, which would remove a lot of these legacies of authoritarianism, these these authoritarian reserves in the constitution that protected the interests of the military and the far right um, politically. And, you know, I could talk about those in, in some detail, um, but that might be more than more time, that might require more time than we have. Um, they elected uh, Gabriel Boric as uh, president, um, and he's been pursuing uh, a constructive agenda. They have also they also elected a constitutional assembly, which offered a progressive new constitution, which was then rejected by public. Uh, and they're kind of working through trying to do this again. I don't know what direction this is going to go in. I don't know what will happen if they fail to reform the constitution. But Chile is very much trying. Um, and, and they're very much trying after this social explosion, this wave of protests. Right. So Chile is kind of on the move. And it'll be interesting to see where Chile goes in the coming years. Absolutely. So thanks very much. That's a terrific uh, overview of, you know, what's happening, what's been happening in two major countries and also in the region as a whole and a, uh, a sort of bright, bright spot that we might pay attention to in the years to come. But that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Enrique Desmond Arias for sharing his insights about contemporary Latin American politics. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, 
Lessons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. <laughs>